Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Really pleased to see you on such a sunny, lovely evening. Um, so thank you very much for being with us. Today, we're going to be talking uh, parental mental health, which is going to be a quite wide-ranging topic. So um, just before we get started, I'll hand you over to Dave so that you can get your questions in and see how you can participate with us. Hey. Hi, Hi everyone. It's great to be with you tonight uh, for MHTV episode 52. We're at 52 already. Uh, and uh, just info in how you can get involved. Obviously, watching, that's the first thing. Uh, it'd be great, though, to hear your thoughts and comments and questions. You can post these in a couple of different ways. One of them is via the Facebook Live chat. So if you just go to the Facebook Live page, uh, put in a, a comment or a question, uh, and we'll be able to bring in all the ones that we can tonight. Uh, the other option is via Twitter, and all you need to do on your tweets is to include the hashtag MHTV, uh, and we'll be able to see them and, uh, again, bring them into the conversation this evening. But without further ado, straight back to you, Nikki. Let's introduce the guests. So first of all, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Uh, yeah, my name's Chris McCree. I work for uh, South London Morsley NHS Trust. I work in two departments. I work across the four borough community perinatal services, um, and that's for women accessing uh, mental health services, pre and post uh, birth, the birth of their child. Um, I also, and I'm doing some sort of development work there around group work and around, I think, family approach. Um, but I also work in the Centre for Parent and Child Support, which is a CAMS national specialist service. And we've developed a being called the Helping Families Team, and they provide a parenting programme um, in the home, an intensive parenting programme in the home for parents with mental health problems where they're worried or professionals are worried about the impact on their children. Um, so, yeah, and that's there's also a group element to that. So that's me. Fantastic. Claire, hello. Hi there. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Claire Dolman, and I'm a journalist and mental health researcher and I have lived experience of bipolar disorder and postpartum psychosis. So most of my research has focused on perinatal mental health, um, particularly um, for women with severe mental illness. And um, I've done a PhD on uh, decision-making around pregnancy for women with bipolar disorder. And uh, that was um, provoked by workshops with women and their partners who had, could get absolutely no information about preconception for and how it affected bipolar, which is massively. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I did the PhD on that. And I am also uh, very involved in the campaign to improve perinatal mental health services. And uh, I'm a trustee of the Maternal Mental Health Alliance. And um, I hope everybody is aware of everybody's business campaign, which campaigns for better services, perinatal mental health. And uh, I'm also trustee of Action on Postpartum Psychosis and uh, an ambassador for Bipolar UK. Fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Much appreciated. That's OK. And last but obviously not least, Katie. Hello. Hi, Hello. I'm Katie. I'm a researcher at the Section for Women's Mental Health at King's College London. And um, yeah, so I'm a qualitative researcher, so doing a lot of stakeholder interviews um, to improve mental health care. And in the last few years, I've been working in maternal mental health. So first uh, on a project in Mozambique with teenage mothers, and I'm currently undertaking an evaluation of community perinatal mental health teams in the NHS. Um, so yeah, that's me. 
sounds exciting, thank you. Um, so I guess maybe the first thing we should do is try and understand a little bit about what are the issues that are around parenting and mental health? And I guess if we just come back to you all in the same sort of order, unless anyone wants to jump in. So what are the, what are the big issues that we need to be thinking about? Um, I'm happy to kick off and then Claire and Katie, you know, jump in. Um, I suppose one of the things, if we come at it from the wider aspect of the Think Family approach, certainly, I mean, I'm a mental health nurse and I've worked in mental health for, you know, over 40 years. And we really struggle to have that kind of whole family approach and think about, certainly within adult services, about relationships and um, sexual relationships and what um, our people using our services might kind of want to think about in terms of uh, what works for them. So we tend to always have a habit of working in crisis mode. So, you know, either a woman with a serious mental illness gets pregnant and then we're in crisis, or we have a, um, you know, perhaps a, a, a somebody who accesses our services and they have a young family and we again we kind of don't think about what what might them support needs might need and we get to a friday afternoon and it's a crisis yeah. and then the parent nobody's ever mentioned my children before and suddenly we're kind of refer, making referrals and quite often our families don't access the full range of early help that's possible mm. because they're they're terrified because there's huge amounts of stigma that's still associated mm. with being a parent and having a mental illness there's loads of concern and anxiety about being referred to children's social care. So that means that we don't think about that because we kind of go, oh, well, everything's you know looking okay. Um, and certainly in terms of this conversation about preconception, we tend not to proactively, particularly talk to women about, you know, sexual health and wellbeing. So I'll, I'll, I'll let my colleagues to kind of come in at that point. <laughs> Well, just to pick up on Chris's point about um, the stigma around social services, I mean, that's certainly something that um, I'm very aware of in in, in the uh, work that I do. And when I interviewed women uh, about, um, pre particularly about, you know, their decision making and, and about preconception and how they thought about having children, it, it was really um, very, very apparent how difficult it was for them because you know they weren't they were really scared about talking raising it with the GP or with the psychiatrist because they would they thought that you know immediately we'll um they'll think they'll tell us that we shouldn't have children and that kind of thing and it was quite marked um in a lot of the conversations that I had with women with bipolar disorder that they were they sort of felt they had to ask permission to have children in the first place because of mm. that stigma. And um, and they and although that was, you know, in the last few years not said overtly, although a few women <laughs> said it was said overtly to them that they shouldn't have children. Mm. Um, but mostly it was just the sort of implication, you know, or being fobbed off and told to sort of go away and think about it more or things like that, which mm. which was really, really hard for so many of these women because many because many women with bipolar, you know, you don't, the average time to a diagnosis is 10 years. So mm. you're talking about women in their early 30s. It then takes them a few years to get the right treatment and the right medication. And then, you know, and then perhaps get settled enough once they're sorted out with a partner. Mm -hmm. And then, so by the time they go 
to see somebody and, and get the courage to talk about it, you know, they're like 38, 39, and they, they've got real problems anyway, facility-wise. Mm. So it's, it's a real, real problem. Absolutely. And the other issue is that women kind of hide from services. So taking Claire's point, it's like, okay, I want a child or I'm going to have a child. And there isn't any pre-planning. So it increases the risk for both them, their baby, the relationship. Um, and then they come into services at the point of crisis. So, of course, then inevitably, the um, what they feared most has to happen because then we're all in crisis. So we have to bring in lots and lots of people. And sometimes, again, we don't think, how do we have this conversation? So as, as the adult mental health practitioner, how do I have that conversation? I think because of our worries, we tend to think, oh, it's somebody else is going to have the conversation. So before we know it, these families can have up to 20 people in the network. You know, and very sadly, over the years I've worked, I've done lots and lots of serious case reviews into child deaths. And you look at the timeline and the chronology about the amount of people that this family were due to go and see. And you're thinking, well, the best one in the world, I wouldn't have managed that. I wouldn't mm. have managed three appointments in one 24-hour period in different places in a borough. Mm. So, and, and obviously those reviews, you know, you've got hindsight and you've got an opportunity. But sometimes I think sometimes we just, as services, we need to take a breath and we need to think, okay, how many people are we involving in this family? How realistic is, is that? What are our expectations? Because we want to encourage people to have that conversation, not make it more fearful. You know, so even if social care needs to be involved, some of that is is our anxiety. And actually, if we brought people in earlier to the planning, then it makes more sense to families about yeah. what everybody's doing. If that makes sense, if there's a career, yes, absolutely, it, it kind of go. Oh, I understand what the role of the social worker is because I might need an admission to the mother and baby unit. You know, I might need help because I don't have a family mm. where my two-year-old can be looked after. I need to think about that, you know. Mm. And maybe the process of a family group conference could be a really helpful. Yeah. But it's it's how the, who has that conversation. And I think because we're all a bit like, oh, is it us? As I say, that you can end up with lots of people involved and the family just going, uh, I don't know where I'm at. Mm. Mm. It's such an overwhelming time as well, isn't it? And I think mothers generally just get so judged by everybody. Yeah. What you do, what you don't do. And then if it's the first baby as well, or a baby perhaps a little bit later on, everyone's... <laughs> and then add into that, you know, the anxiety around all kinds of stigma. And I think what you say is really interesting, this idea that sometimes we're like, oh, people are hiding out from services with very good reason. Like, <laughs> it's just one less thing to be scared and worried about. I'm aware that we didn't get to come to Katie. Was there anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, I guess I was just going to chip in from from the research perspective. So we did um, we did a review to look for um, any evidence based kind of testing of preconception interventions with women with severe mental illness, and we really didn't find very much at all in like in terms of uh, RCTs about how is the best way to deliver this kind of information and who does it and what's the format and what are the key intervention points. So even though we know from other parts of preconception research that you have these incredible sort of long-term low-cost health benefits and it's a really great example of preventative care we just don't have the um the studies to tell us how exactly this uh, preconception can be best delivered for women with serious mental illness so it's quite a gap so we're kind of 
delivering the services before we kind of know exactly what the best way to do so is. So um, it's mm. definitely an area that requires a lot of focus and um, a lot of testing to mm. get it um, finessed. Or get it happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's let's have a little think then. What, what do we mean? We're talking about preconception work. What, what does that mean? What does it look like? What is it? Well, I'll, I'll dive in. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's, it's thinking about having a baby and, and making those plans. And if you're a woman with a severe mental illness, you have to make those plans well in advance. In some of the, the workshops that um, I run with um, a perinatal psychiatrist, uh, Ian Jones in Wales, he always says, you know, women are often ask that they say well how long before i want to have a baby should i start planning thinking about it in terms of going to see the doctor and getting referrals mm. and this, that, the other and he says about two years so mm. if that you know if i was thinking we were just i was just saying about women tending to be older when they're thinking about this quite often mm. i mean not always obviously but then to add another two years onto that you know is is quite considerable and one thing that i think is really important for professionals to be aware of is when they're dealing with with women you know further back even than thinking about preconception when you're because lots of sort of women that I spoke to said that they when they were diagnosed say in their mid-20s or 30 or something I asked them were they um you know, told about the implications of pregnancy because mm. I don't know if you know, but for bipolar disorder, you have a one in two, 50% chance of having an episode of illness. And it's mm. uh, so a one in four chance of having a postpartum psychosis, you know, which is a psychiatric emergency and will probably put you in hospital for six or seven weeks or more. Mm. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's quite, it's high stakes for these women and a lot of them are very frightened about it mm. and uh, find the, find the whole dis decision-making process very frightening. And I, uh, but some of them go and talk about this to, you know, whoever, the doctor, and uh, they they say, oh, well, you know, have you heard of this? And they've never even heard of this they, because they when they were diagnosed, you know, yeah. five or ten years earlier, they weren't warned that uh, at pregnancy, you're, you know, you're going to have to make a lot of decisions and it's quite mm. a, there are quite a few things to consider. So I, and I, I interviewed a lot of um, general psychiatrists and asked them about whether they, did actually inform women when they diagnosed them or when, when they were discharging them from hospital or care or whatever, did they inform them about, you know, the, the sure. pregnancy for them to have that in the back of their mind that they were going to have to give it some thought and everything and prepare for it. And uh, half of them said that they didn't. And the half who did, surprise, surprise, were all women, psychiatrists. Mm. And half who didn't mainly were men so yeah. that was very you know disappointing because if you know about it then at least you can sort of get a little bit ahead of the game yeah I mean for me it's a bit it should be an everyday conversation we have with everybody accessing service you know at sort of particularly mental health services you know anyone of childbearing age I mean what's really fascinating in mental health is we talk a lot about recovery 
And whenever I've read or looked at about anything in recovery, it's about work and leisure. Now, I don't know about anybody else in this world, but, you know, when I'm feeling not great, what's important in my life is my relationships and my friendship. Where it has its, you know, and my leisure activities, they're all there to support. But we don't talk to people about relationships and about planning. And it's not... You know, lots of people in this world might not want a child, but actually to have a conversation with somebody in a mental health service to say, you know, this is your diagnosis or this is the kind of treatment plan or this is the intervention, whatever kind of terminology we want to use. But part of that is our learning about how important relationships are, that you might want to be a parent at some point. Um, and how to, you know, who you might want to talk to and you know, these are some resources you might want to use. And this is who you can, you know, you can talk to your GP, you can talk to, you can come back and talk to us. And I actually just make it a very normal, natural conversation. I don't want to assume that everybody wants a parent, but there's no harm in saying that for somebody of childbearing age, I mean, we don't have the conversation with men about contraception or, you know, about what they kind of might view yeah. in terms of yeah. their, their role as a, as a dad or, yeah. you know, so, I mean, we happen to be talking about women in preconception because of really wanting to reduce the risk and really enabling women to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think it, as, as staff members, we should be able to be open to think about it in terms of enabling people to move on from our services yeah. in a positive way. Mm-hmm. If that makes it's, sense. It's, it's, it's actually really, and I have to say, to be honest, before I, we started having these conversations, I hadn't thought about it that much. And I've been in mental health nursing for 20 years. Not really. Talked, talked about it really I talked a lot about kind of sex and consent and things like that but never the outcome and I think um we talk a lot about risk as well and as Claire was saying this puts people at tremendous risk yeah. and the other thing I think is the grief that must be around that as well for some yeah. people you know whether you do whether you choose to or not yeah. the fact that something that you assume is gonna just one part of your life where this doesn't interfere for just one minute isn't there I think that's that must be really, really hard for people as well. Yeah. And to be able to have those conversations is really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I work with this. So, sorry, Katie. Go. Oh no, I was just, I was just going to say to pick up on, on what you were saying. It's not a lot of sort of questions. I think in the medical setting sometimes come after. Oh, are you thinking about having children? No. End of conversation. And it can't just be a case of that. As Chris was saying, it's about normalising these conversations. So just to speak to people and say, if you were to get pregnant, you Mm. might want to think about these different factors and here are some further services that you could access to continue these conversations rather Mm. than just shutting it down based on whether or not someone's actively thinking about pregnancy at that moment. And I think Mm. often you don't think about, you really shut those conversations down about being a mother or becoming pregnant Mm. for a long time until perhaps it's sort of, as Claire said, you have a few years where you want to sort of maybe prepare for the mm. healthiest pregnancy possible. So getting in early, and I think people really will remember those initial conversations because mm. it is such a big topic for people. Mm. Yeah. The way you get asked must be really important too. Yeah, it's, but it's also building that knowledge about somebody's life. Yeah. You know, I mean, years ago when I, I started in mental health in 1980, very old, but I might, um, uh, you know, it was common practice to draw a diagram. You had a genogram, you had it worked out who was in the family. 
you know, we don't, it's interesting what we've kind of lost sometimes. I mean, I'm sure some yeah. practitioners still do it, but, you know, who is your partner? Do you have a partner? Do you, you know, what, you know, what's your relationship? You know, we, we talked about, you know, equality and we talked about kind of different types of relationships, you know, so in terms of somebody's sexuality, we need to understand those things if we're going to provide a, a kind of, for want of a better word, a kind of holistic approach to really understand what the triggers might be. So within the resources that you'll, you know, that you'll access, there is stuff around domestic violence and abuse because we recognise that actually that also increases the risk, mm. you know, in terms of to the woman herself, to the child, to the kind of how, how, you know, that pregnancy or that, that conversation around preconception might occur. Sorry, it's a bit of a ramble, but, you, you know, that unless we sit down and really help somebody and talk to somebody about, you know, their relationships, who who their partner is, and if they don't have a partner, what, you know, kind of what, what their future desires might be, um, we can't help somebody plan and we can't reduce the risk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Did you want to say something, Claire, before we yeah, go? We'll just, take some questions in a sec. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, in relation to what Chris was just saying, because mm. I sort of um, help with these topics on the forum for Bipolar UK, and we get a lot of women on there who are thinking about having children or scared of having children or don't know what to do, things like that. And in the last couple of years, I suppose, there have been more women who uh, are thinking about having a child on their own so obviously having a child on your own with bipolar as well is quite a, a tough thing. And they often, I also, you know, they people have emailed me and said, what do I think about it and all that kind of thing. And I and I, I always say, well, this is the whole thing. You've got to think about your whole support system, haven't you? Because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you can't say to anybody whether you should or not have a child, but if for that person to think about, you know, who they've got there to support them and how, you know, I'm just, I'm a new grandma and my daughter, who's a health visitor, is going bananas with her baby not sleeping at the moment, you know, both of them. And her husband is just like up the wall. And so you think, well, that is really, really stressful for them. If you're on your own and you've got a mental health condition, you know, you can only really think about I would have thought doing that if you know you've got your mum or you know your mm. sister or family or really good friends or mm. somebody around you who's going to help you mm. because you can't really rely on services I don't think. Well you also have to change quite a lot of your own coping strategies and if you're managing a lot of your mental health issues by you know I have a special sleep pattern I have a, a routine that I keep to and also no routine for you <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. really different. Yeah, and sleep is such a critical thing for bipolar. You know, it's very triggering. So, so it's you really, really have got to get some, make sure you have support. Let's have to take a couple of questions. So, hello, I can see some people watching this. Nice to see you guys. Um, we've got a question from Adrian um, saying a really interesting conversation. How can we improve screening? When I was clinical, there's a lot of professional stigma to mental health and addictions, which is background, um, and having completed. Uh, completed serious case reviews, it seemed to me that screening questions weren't asked or referrals not made. So what, what can we do to improve that screening? Um, I, I suppose for me, it's that it, it, it goes back to that conversation about having this as um, you know, routine kind of conversations with people. 
So not making assumptions about um, somebody's life or their relationships, um, but also not getting into that kind of, oh, we've got a standard template question. Um, you know, do you want a baby? Yes, no. Oh, it's no. Right. Okay. Moving on to the next one is is much more trying to kind of understand it in terms of, uh, you know, and I, not everybody's keen on this word, but the kind of whole concept of something around recovery, around enabling, around kind of, you know, you've just talked about mm -hmm. sleep and if you're a single parent and how stressful that is, so you're going to have to have different coping mechanisms. So there's mm -hmm. something about mm -hmm. kind of people who come into, you know, of a, of a kind of childbearing age coming into services, thinking when that initial assessment is, so who's in their network, who's important to them, you know, mm -hmm. and whether that's, you know, a 17 year old coming into CAMS or whether that's the 23 year old coming into adult services, you know, what is it that's who's in their network, who's is, who's supportive, who isn't, who might trigger a problem. And, mm -hmm. and I know we kind of do that, but we don't do it through this lens of seeing people in different roles. Mm -hmm. You know, they might already be a mum and they might want another child. They might mm -hmm. be a dad and they might, you know, be worried. They might, you know, they they might be a sister. They might still be living at home with younger kids. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of things. So that's why my passion is around that whole kind of family approach. Who's in the family? What do we need to understand? And how does that impact on what we can provide as a service? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got enough one here. Did you want to jump in, Dave, at all? I don't want to put you on. I asked him last week if he wanted to, and I didn't want to. So I don't want to, but he's a health visitor, so I need to ask. <laughs> Go on. No, so we've got some extra questions, haven't we, Nikki? Cool. So uh, Mushtag's uh, sent a few really good questions in. One of them is about the lack of diversity in perinatal specialist midwives, social workers, health visitors, psychologists, and child adolescent clinicians. Uh, does that have an impact in outcomes of care and how can services and staff become more inclusive and accessible? Oh. Well, I would have thought it must have it must have an it must have an impact, mustn't it? I mean, it, it, it would be it would be much you know preferable if 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 there was much more diversity. But I suppose that's more from sort of like further back up the pipeline, really, in terms of encourage really really positively encouraging people to 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 get involved rather than sort of the midwives we've got now. Yeah, I know. I know one of the pieces of work that we're doing for psychology is to look at how we get a much more diverse uh, sort of range of people involved, and and it yeah. seems very much kind of a, a white middle class uh, female mm. role at the moment, uh, and sort of recognizing how much better mm. it'd be. I think the other thing is about how much community groups can become involved, and obviously, you know, there's a better chance that community groups would better represent the communities that they're sort of based in. Uh, but the kind of problems where we've seen such a lot cut back over the last few years in terms of, mm. you know, support that charities would get from local authorities, for example. Yeah. So mm. it, it it makes sort of everyone's job sort of much more difficult, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, uh, Alfonso's asked another question around uh, diversity. And is there any research or best practice on same-sex parenting and their experiences of parenting and mental health? I was I was just talking about this before uh, we started the call as kind of a special interest of mine as I haven't in so I've been working in kind of perinatal mental health for two and a half years now gosh well 
for me anyway not for Chris <laughs> um uh I'm very young to the game but um no from from what I've been kind of familiarizing myself with in terms of the perinatal mental health research I haven't seen a lot of it um I know that there's uh, I'm speaking to another colleague about this and there's some evidence from up north on the Wirral study um where they think followed up about a thousand uh, parents and think yeah it was a very small double double digit number that was uh, same sex parents um so it seems like there's uh, a real need to dive into that uh, population mm. and start speaking with um same sex parents to see if there's sort of additional needs and how those either are being served currently or what mm. sort of additional support needs to be made available I don't want to predict what research is going to find, but I think you can guess. Can't you? <laughs> Sorry, I, Claire, I yeah. That's right. I was just going to say that I was one advantage that I, I know about, certainly in the MBUs where they um, don't let um, dads stay overnight because they haven't got proper facilities. They So they won't allow dads to stay, like even on a camp bed on the ward or whatever, like for women with postpartum psychosis stuff but but a female partner can so it's a, that's a big plus <laughs> it's difficult because you can see that the more layers of just sort of of of, of of difference or discrimination that come in the harder it is to get that service and it's already a service that is not really where it needs to be in terms of reach so i think we can see where the perhaps the future research needs to come and um, so more questions from you dave Oh, there was one that kind of fits in with that as well about, do you think inpatient family units should be brought back where all members of family can be treated or at least have one-stop shop for outpatients? Um, I certainly would agree that we need to work significantly better across our CAMS and adult divide in mental health services because we are at risk of working in a kind of several silos can I mean working with the whole family and be completely unaware that two you know two or three services might be involved mm -hmm. so i i kind of really do think we you know and not just oh because somebody's going to family therapy but as a routine mm -hmm. that that our services work more co collaboratively together um you know um without a doubt um because i think then it's less confusing for the family. There's more understanding about impact. Um, you know, you're not then just focusing on one individual. So, I, you know, how, however that might look, I think um, there's, there's various ways, but, um, but it is quite interesting as somebody, when we've set up the Helping Families team, we're seen as a CAMS national specialist service, despite the fact that we get referrals from adult services and CAMS. And it's just, I mean, to be perfectly honest, a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare from yeah. a kind of, you know, writing on the notes to who funds and, you know, so we get we get one pathway sorted and then that upsets somebody else because it doesn't make sense. So there's there's lots of constraints sometimes that clinically you just think, I just wish somebody would just kind of get rid of some of that because it doesn't, you know, we can do a whole family approach. Mm -hmm. um, certainly I've worked in children's social care for a number of years and they really valued the role of having 
a, a mental health nurse working alongside them, helping them to kind of negotiate and understand what might be going on. And it's helped those conversations because it means they don't just focus on diagnosis and risk. It means they understand services that are being provided by adult mental health or CAMS. And that kind of, so I think us being more imaginative, imaginative about how we provide services mm -hmm. has got to be a way forward. And I think it goes back to that earlier comment is that then it might attract more people. You know, if we're going into schools and talking to people about what attracts people to these kind of roles, yeah. some sort of diversity in what we're providing might make it more interesting. Yeah, definitely. And um, there's some questions coming in from, well, one on doulas. Do you think that would help to have somebody who's maybe in, in a non-medical type role coming in and having somebody just as almost like a friend, partner, guide? If, have you any thoughts on that? Any awareness of if it's worked, if it's happened, if it's been researched? I don't know whether it's been researched much, but it's it certainly it certainly can work. We have a doula organisation, a, a charity that is part of our Maternal Mental Health Alliance. I know. Mm. Um, but I know that, you know, it, it can cause problems as well if there's because individuals sort of perhaps take on that, you know, their role. They see themselves more as midwives and perhaps mm. uh, and mm. they can, there can be some frictions there. I've certainly heard of heard of that in the past. Mm. I don't know that much. Yeah, from my from my interviews with with mums who've accessed these uh, specialist perinatal mental health teams, there's definitely um, anecdotally like there seems to be a few instances where kind of someone's specific notes around their birth plan that they've created with the mental health team doesn't necessarily get passed on when they are on the ward in for an emergency C-section mm. and people are changing mm. shifts and their sort of specific requests which they've discussed which they think will really help them kind of have a the most smooth experience possible aren't always noticed and I don't know whether there would be a role for a doula mm. to come in as someone who kind of bridges that gap between uh, mental high side of things yeah. and then mm. um, on the wards themselves. Mm. Maybe, maybe. i a question from one of the students which is quite an interesting one so, so if you want students saying um I I had this conversation on the ward in my first week when someone started talking to me about it and basically what they're saying is um but they've just been taught that you pass mental illness on directly so I, i'd imagine that they've still got quite an early understanding of how um how this how this experience happens for people and they were like and i just didn't know what to say so have you any guidance or any suggestions on what to do under those circumstances i'm not I sure think was, the, was the was the was it the, the first year student, student who had been told that or a patient of theirs who'd been the patient was that. talking to the student about it which is really interesting isn't it because that's the only person who's obviously sitting down to have that conversation which is in itself a problem but they were they've obviously just been they're just trying to understand maybe how um how people become unwell and then they're thinking oh, what if i tell this person yes they have a baby it's great and then they pass it on what if they don't i guess what i would say is that's not it's not your choice to make so you don't have to worry about that necessarily just direct it to how other people when other people have or don't have babies it's not your problem that's not your job your job is to make sure that people have the best information they can to make their own choices for themselves i would say yeah but but i would i would hope that they would know the they would have the knowledge themselves to say what the risk of passing them on of it mm. on it. because you know obviously there are 
for, for certain, I'm like, I'm always being asked that for bipolar. And a yeah. lot of people misunderstand and think that they're definitely, it's definitely, you know, like 100% hereditary and everything else. And it, mm. it is actually a 10% chance of your child having bipolar. So, you know, that can be the difference between somebody giving up or thinking, oh, yes, I can have children. Yeah. And it also goes back to that earlier conversation about the more that you have these conversations, the more people get to know knowledge is power. And actually, then people can get help. You know, the risks yeah. that our mental health is when we um, when we don't get help at the right time, the right help or that, you know, um, and then we're in crisis. So that's, and that then impacts on the children and young people, you know, so I've worked with lots of young people who are really worried about, you know, they're often doing quite a significant amount of work in the home, they're supporting their parent, and they are worried about what it might mean for them. But actually, they they have quite a lot of, um, a, a really good understanding about their mental health and well-being and what works. But again, it's like going back to that exploring what works for somebody, what are the triggers, what can we kind of do to kind of reduce the stress at certain points of the year if that you know what is it for that individual rather than this is the diagnosis and this is what it's going to mean for somebody you know diagnosis is really useful but only in the concept of what it means for, for me as an individual what is it well how do i experience it and how might that impact on my family mm-hmm. what does my family need to understand um you know because it yeah as Claire says you know you start getting into that kind of genetic argument it can Mm -hmm. be really stressful and really difficult because my child's experience might be very different from mine yeah you know yeah absolutely and we're sort of coming towards the end that's flown by already so one of the things I was was thinking about our last sort of question was around what can what can people do um to help families thrive so what what sort of things can can staffs and students and families and friends do? What can we be doing to be to help this situation? I guess this is a good opportunity to plug the resources, mm-hmm. um, which Nikki, I'm, I'm yeah, they've tweeted shared. out. They're already okay, there. Yeah, fabulous. Um, so uh, the three of us were recently involved in a big piece of preconception care work uh, with Public Health England. Public Health England and um, NHS England, uh, Kings and Tommies and uh, Bipolar UK and lots of different stakeholders came together to really look at what was out there and existing in this field and what we could do to pull up, pull together all of the evidence and repackage it for clinicians and also for women themselves so that Mm -hmm. it wasn't just a trickle down effect and people could find this information and it was uh, kind of distributed. Um, so there's the the drier side of things, which is my my area, which is the kind of research document and an evidence review. And um, then there's a health professional resource for essentially anyone working in, at any point in the journey with women with serious mental illness. Um, but these preconception resources are very much applicable to anyone planning on having a child because we know that uh, sometimes in pregnancy, it might be a woman's sort of first experience of difficult mental health, um, whereas it might not have happened before. Um, then they're on the Tommy's website, they uh, partnered with us and have got some really great uh, sort of online, um, it's kind of a questionnaire that you can do and fill in certain yes, no boxes and it will, you can sign up to directed emails to get more information about uh, kind of planning for a healthy pregnancy and serious mental illness and 
what to be aware of. Um, just uh, sort of steamrolled there. I don't know if Chris and Claire <laughs> to jump in. I have to say no, Absolutely. No, if you plug in the resources, go for it. So they're on uh, Twitter at the moment, but we'll pop them over when we finish onto the Facebook Live page as well if you're if you're looking for those. But they're under the MHTV tag. tag. Right, just, just to add to that, that it's not all very dry. And I, I did no. have loads of quotes from women themselves. <laughs> <laughs> just the academic bit, yeah, not yeah. the ones for, for the women themselves. <laughs> and there's it's a very user-friendly study as well in there, mm -hmm. talking about her experience there. Mm. So people it's can really get involved, they can find out know. about stuff, yeah. yeah, and just know, and actually pass it on and remind people to ask and have those kind of open conversations, really important. Is yeah. there anything else that we can do to be supportive? And just help. for me, it's, it's like my mantra is that kind of whole family approach, you know, whoever you're working with and who and I define family. I'm, I'm not defining who that family is, you know, mm -hmm. you know, who is important in the in the network of the people we're working with. And can we bring them mm -hmm. together in order that the safest care and the, you know, the kind of better understanding of what's going on for somebody can be shared within that family. And that might be somebody's neighbour, it might be their best mate. I, you know, as I say, it's not for me to define, but I think we, we will do better and children and young people will be less at risk. We will reduce risk for parents if we have that whole family approach. You know, can we bring young people into a care program approach meeting? And I can I can imagine some of my colleagues going, really? And I'm going, yes, you can. There is nothing wrong with bringing a 14 year old into with the parents understanding into that concept, you know, and actually thinking about a safety plan for them. Who do they phone? You know, and if you have that hat on throughout, it means that actually women will be accessing preconception care because it will be a natural conversation to have. Um, to share those resources with somebody and to go back, you know, these need to be repeated conversations. They're not a one-off in somebody's life. You know, if they don't feel like having a baby this year and they come back and see you next year, it's, you know, we can repeat the conversations. I mean, there's nobody else who makes decisions like that. It's like you were asked when you're 25, you said no. Like, that's up to you. It's like, it's not a one-time deal, is it? Um, is there anything, any sort of like last thoughts or something that you'd like to leave the audience with? Because we all obviously we're wrapping up soon so I shall come round to you each each one of you Claire is there anything you'd like to just um share yeah. before we head out yeah just quickly what Chris was saying about the about the sort of the, somebody's network whoever they mm. are and their that how important it is for them to sort of get a bit of knowledge about it and that you know and there are there are things on like Bipolar UK's website and APP mm. about Tommy's and Mind and other websites that it are very accessible and you know there's lots of there's lots of peer support on those that they can just go on and chat to other people who, who've been in the same situation which is a lot more accessible for some people than yeah. reading dry stuff about it but just quickly to say on the particularly from a from women with bipolar point of view they can be great parents so i, said, yeah. I just want to emphasize that because they really can yeah well i mean i think it's important to say it straight up and out proud isn't it because there's a lot of implicit head shaking and sighing and no one knows exactly you're right that a lot of people are stopping saying those terrible things that people used to say i mean i don't know if any of the younger students remember things like refrigerator mothers and all these appalling sexist unpleasantries that were said to to women who had mental health issues and families and and that thankfully that's pretty much stopped but a lot of that kind of hangover stuff is still there there's implicit judgments about 
someone's capability or capacity to love is it's just nonsense, frankly. Just, just nonsense. <laughs> Katie, is there anything you wanted to add as, as, as uh, we were heading out? Yeah, I guess just to go back to those starting conversations early and, you know, talking about children doesn't have to be making a decision to have a child. Mm -hmm. It's just an awareness of not only the mechanics of it, which we get taught at school along with sort of this is how you have sex and this is what happens when a baby's born, but everything that comes alongside mm -hmm. it. So the relationships, which are absolutely key and just an awareness of the kind of broader context around motherhood um, so that people don't mm. only think about it the first time that they think, oh, I think I'm going to mm. try for a baby. And they've had an awareness of it for a much longer time. Mm. Absolutely. Bruce, was there anything you want to add? And then we'll come to Dave and see if there's anything from him. I think, um, as Gage said, you know, um, embedding these into regular conversations, this isn't a one-off. Mm. I think it then enables um, people to access early help. Um, which lots of our women with SMI don't, and that's mm. discrimination. So I think if we we can't talk about stigma and discrimination without talking about sex and relationships and a whole family approach. Mm. Absolutely. Dave? Hello. Yes, so the big thing I wanted to plug was this month, the Mental Health Nursing Journal is a special on perinatal mental health. So obviously, if people's appetite have been whetted tonight, then do get a copy of this. It's actually a free copy that we're doing this month because uh, it was produced in partnership with the Maternal Mental Health Alliance, which I know Claire's already mentioned this evening. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we did that because we're at, at MHNA, we're a part of the Maternal Mental Health Alliance too. Uh, and, you know, organisations like Maternal Mental Health Alliance and the First Thousand One Critical Days uh, Coalition have done so much good work in this space. Uh, and we're really proud to be uh, a small part of that, too. So uh, I'd encourage anyone that's watching tonight that aren't aware of those two organisations alongside great organisations like Tommy's you know, please do kind of look up their Twitter handles and have a look at the work that they're doing. And obviously, you know, it's a happy infant mental health awareness week as well this week, uh, that opportunity to highlight how important infants' mental health is. Uh, you know, we know that parents' mental health can sometimes be forgotten, but we know that mm -hmm. babies, infants and young people's mental health often falls through the cracks too. Uh, mm -hmm. So just be mindful of that as well. Uh, and obviously the best way of supporting an infant's mental health is by supporting parents' mental health, uh, mm. because we know about that relationship that parents and, you know, it's so important, parents and babies' relationship, you know, needs to be nice and strong. So, yeah, final thoughts from me, Nikki, back to you. Fantastic. Well, I'm obviously not one to make any further comments, <laughs> knowing absolutely zero about babies. <laughs> Let's finish up. But so thank you very much, everyone, for your time today and to our fantastic panel for really opening up a discussion that I don't know that much about, frankly. Um, and I guess it's it's no problem not to know, but it's a problem to carry on not knowing. So we've got the links out there. So please um, have a look at them, retweet them, send them to people who you think need to see it and have those conversations. And thank you ever so much for your time. Much appreciated. Good night. Take care. Good night, everyone. Bye -bye. Good night. Thank you.